Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. And uh, as you may know, a reminder, we are remote recording now. Uh, that means that I'm in my bedroom uh, facing a woman who is suntanning in her bathing suit <laughs> while gardening. Uh, and you might hear my cat. The audio is going to be a little different from our studios. Uh, and in fact, our guest today actually has some cats and kids that you might hear too. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Kestrin Pantera here with me. Hi. Hi. And Kestrin's in her own home, obviously. Um, and how's it going over there, Kestrin? You know, we're rolling pretty deep on cats. We're five cats deep. That was a real uh, increase from our one cat in uh, early March. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you need more than one cat during a uh, pandemic. Uh, for those of you who are not as familiar with Kestrin's career, please let me give you an introduction. Kestrin didn't start off her career as a writer, director, or actor. For a long time, she actually studied classical music, playing the cello, and then she got swallowed up into the rock scene of Los Angeles, where she played in numerous bands and traveled around the world playing shows. But even before that, she was living in Taipei, Taiwan, where she became fluent in Mandarin and performed voiceovers for 100-plus companies in the U.S. and Southeast Asia. When she finally went for it and moved into film and television, she started off acting in front of the camera and also writing and directing shorts, which helped her find her footing as a commercial director for Wired, Technicolor, Johnson & Johnson, Be The Match, Google, Coca-Cola, GE, Starwood, Intel, Best Buy, HBO, Starbucks, and Stoli. But in 2014, she debuted her first feature, Let's Ruin It With Babies, which was hailed by the Los Angeles Times as honest, convincing, and just plain adorable. Her new feature film, Mother's Little Helpers, world premiered at South by Southwest 2019. Early reviews laud the film as a wonderful, big chill-esque dramedy with big screen chemistry from the ground up. And the New York Times called Kestrin a force. The film tells the story of a burnt-out flower child of the 70s who discovers she has weeks to live, which prompts a reluctant and hilarious reunion between her and her millennial children. And Mother's Little Helpers is uh, coming out soon, is that correct? Yeah, just in time for Mother's Day. It's a. It turns out that the the personal story I told about a bunch of adult children tra trapped in their childhood home with their boomer parent um, has become, in fact, the uh, national national nightmare that we're living right now. So um, couldn't have predicted that, but it's coming out uh, on iTunes uh, May fifth, and it's available right now for pre order. But Mother's Day weekend is when it's really going to kick into full swing. So we're stoked. Yeah. Um, great timing. Worst timing. Great timing. All timing. Uh, Kestra, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Galaxy Quest, uh, a cult favorite. Uh, can you give us a little explanation on why this one is one of your fave genre films? Oh, yeah. Growing up, my primary means of bonding with my dad was watching Star Trek and then uh, Star Wars, of course, the Star Wars trilogy. And then when TNG came out, we went full Picard. Um, and so that's kind of one of my happiest childhood memories is watching sci-fi uh, television with my dad. And of course, oh. we saw all the all the TNG movies that came out in the theaters with the whales and the aquarium in San Francisco. And mm. I'm a huge fan. That's great. 
Um, I, I'm more of a DS9 girl than a uh, TNT Ooh. girl, but I do appreciate the T. I'm actually wearing my cork shirt right now. I didn't realize I was wearing that. <laughs> anyway, um, for those of you who haven't seen Galaxy Quest, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching still. If you would like to pause and watch Galaxy Quest first, um, it's your shot i think it's on amazon prime and a few other places right now and now that you're back let me introduce galaxy quest written by robert gordon and david howard and directed by dean pariseau galaxy quest stars tim allen as jason nesmith sigourney weaver as gwen demarco alan rickman as alexander dane tony shaloub as fred kwan sam rockwell as guy fliegman and chill mitchell as tommy weber all of them castmates on a cancelled 1980s star trek like tv show they spend their days mostly doing cons, with Jason being the only one who loves them, because he thrives on the attention of being the captain. Never give up! Never surrender! Damn the residents get it! Full speed ahead, huh? One day, some aliens called Thermians ask Jason for some assistance. He thinks it's a photo op, and these guys are just dressed in costume for the con. I must speak to you. It is a matter of supreme importance. We are Thermians from the Klaatu Nebula, and we need your help. Is this about the gig tomorrow? I just hammer out the details with my agent and make sure there's a limo at my house. Last time I did one of these gigs, they shoved me in the back of a Toyota. They pick him up and take him to their spaceship the next day, a recreation of the one on the show, and Jason performs as the captain, telling them to attack General Saurus. Okie dokie, okie dokie, uh, let's fire blue particle cannons full, red particle cannons full, Gannett magnets, fire them left and right, and let them run all shoots while you're at it once yet. Toss that at him, killer. That should take care of old lobster head, shouldn't it? There's a temporary victi victory in Jason's return to Earth, at which point he realizes what he just experienced is real. But the Thermians are still in trouble. And this time, they bring the whole crew up to their ship. The Thermians got the transmission of the TV show and thought it was historical document and built up their entire world to mirror what they saw on TV. Since we first received transmission of your historical documents, we have studied every facet of your missions and strategies. You've been watching the show? Lieutenant, historical documents. Historical documents? From out here? Yes. The past hundred years, our society had fallen into disarray. Our goals, our values had become scattered. But since the transmission, we have modeled every aspect of our society from your example, and it has saved us. Everyone from the crew is freaked out, and General Saurus is suddenly attacking. They take a hit in power and have to seek out a power source, but Saurus seizes the ship and forces Jason to confess to the Thermians that the TV show wasn't real. We, uh... We pretended. We lied. Saurus activates self-destruct timer on the ship and takes off, but Jason rallies the crew to save the aliens by communicating with a Galaxy Quest superfan back on Earth named Brandon, who's got intimate knowledge of the ship. Brandon, I remember you from the convention, right? You asked all those little technical questions about the ship, and I was a little short with you. Yes, yes, I, I know, Commander, and uh, I actually wanna, just wanted to tell you that I, I thought a lot about what you said. It's okay, now listen. But, but I want you to know that I'm not a complete brain case, okay? <laughs> I understand completely that it's just a TV show. <laughs> oh, 
Hold. I know there's no Wait a minute. Spear, stop. Stop no for a second. Stop. Wait. No ship. It's all real. Oh my god, I knew it. I knew it! I knew it! Jason and Gwen are successfully led to the core to shut down the self-destruct sequence, and the others help the Thermians take back control so they can catch up with Saurus and attack. They think Saurus's ship is destroyed, but Saurus escapes and kills several crew members, at which time Jason uses a time warper and moves back 13 seconds, just enough time to disarm Saurus and save the crew. The humans crash land back on Earth thanks to Brandon's assistance, and Jason kills Saurus in front of a con crowd, while the Thermians go on to be brave aliens in space. The end. Um, so, I think, you know, there's a lot. We, we should probably talk a little bit about the fact that the casting is, I mean, it's it's A+, plus first off, um, and, and that's... Uh, definitely, you know, due to not just the the studio, but the casting director who was, you know, fighting for a lot of people. Um, Deborah Zane was the was the casting director. For instance, um, Missy Pyle, she had a really great story about that because they couldn't find a woman who could be um, Thermian in the same way that um, Enrico Colantoni and um, Rain Wilson and Jed Reese were doing because they had they had to be so over the top and strange. And these women would come in and audition and not understand that they wouldn't tell them. And it's not that they weren't capable of doing it. It's just that they they didn't know. And so she said, quote, Missy saw it and got it immediately. And then we came into the audition room and we taped her and she was so great that when I sent the audition tape to Dean Pariso, the director on her picture and resume, I put a little post it. I actually made a Xerox copy of my Casting Society of America membership card. And I said, if this is not Lali Ari, I will resign from the CSA, end quote. <laughs> I mean, Missy Pyle is one of my favorite actors. She is just, uh, she's such a strong character actor and there's so much empathy and honesty while she's doing the most bonkers stuff. Yes. So grounded in reality. Um, I love her. She, I mean, that was a great, she, she nailed it. Did you ever have a thing, you know, in the same kind of sense where you're trying to find the correct tone and um, like the only way that you can kind of show the actors the tone is to actually show them either another actor's audition tape or uh, another piece of a film um, just so they understand what you're trying to go for? Um, I think tonally, I usually I know the people who I cast before doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, there were some like early on, um, auditions where I felt like it was, it was really hard getting the tone right. Um, but I write for actors. So it's always been a really organic, like, I think a lot of the hitches and, you know, I'm excited to have these problems because I would love to direct something sci-fi, something in the realm of Galaxy Quest. Mm -hmm. um, I would love like Picard, you know, I'm, I'm so excited as soon as we get Mother's Little Helpers out to just go full Picard. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, um, so I, you know, these are, these are situations that I'm really looking forward to having, um, you know, more creative conversations and debates over, but from my experience, it has been so smooth and so effortless. Like casting is really <laughs> been easy for me. I just have a conversation. Usually it comes down to me having a, going out to coffee with someone mm -hmm. and talking story. And by the end of it, there, we are crystal clear and there are very, I mean, the, it, it, those sort of like, are we, is the, are we, do we have the same tone? That's never even been a question. 
Yeah. Because yeah. we're so like mind melded to, to stay in the Vulcan um, <laughs> terminology. Like I try to, I try to approach every project with a really deep mind meld before we shoot. <laughs> yes. Um, mind meld. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Tim Allen. He said, I mean, it, Tim Allen, I think everyone was aware, and Tim Allen himself especially, um, was aware that he wasn't really an an actor. You know, he wasn't Alan Rickman. So there was like a lot of um, uh, friction on set in, in between that. And um, there's that moment where he has to tell uh, Mathazar that he is not the person that he thinks he is. And um, according to Alan, quote, Steven Spielberg was on the set for one day, the day when I had to apologize to Enrico's character, Mathazar. He's being killed and I have to admit I'm all bullshit. Now I come out of the comedy world. This kind of stuff doesn't come easy to me. I didn't see him. He was at the director's camp, but he came by and said, that was really good. It wasn't like he was ass kissing. Why would Steven Spielberg have to do that with me? But he said something very professional. And I was like, whoa end quote. Um, and apparently when he was done doing that take and, and Spielberg was on set, um, Tim, Tim Allen had uh, said, I don't feel comfortable with how I, how the feelings that I'm feeling right now. And so he excused himself to his trailer. And then Alan Rickman turned to the director and said, I believe he's just experienced his first acting. (laughs) I, I honestly think that what he was saying in that monologue while he was he was admitting that he was a fraud, that he didn't know what he was doing, that like he wasn't actually good at this. Like having to say those words in front of Spielberg and Alan Rickman mm-hmm. was probably the most truthful moment he'd ever gone through as a person. Yeah. <laughs> like that, I mean, and I, you know, I think that all acting, if it's not personal, it's meaningless. And I really took that as a great monologue and a great performance because it was so honest and truthful. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's like a, that's a fun breakthrough. I'm sure that it felt really good for everyone on set where, you know, he's tearing up, everyone's tearing up and you're like, oh, okay. Like we know this guy can do comedy. He's been doing comedy, but he really, he pulled off the, like the scene that you need to have work. Like it it had to fly or there would be no emotional resonance with the rest of the story. And uh, I'm curious about um, that kind of victory on set and and how that feels when you when you really nail the emotional take that you know is everything is going to hinge on. I mean, it's terrifying. First, I mean, I can I want to speak to that from my own personal experience, but I also want to really just have a moment with the fact that Alan Rickman had tension with Tim Allen on set about fine acting versus lowbrow acting, which is what their characters were fighting over the entire time. Like was Rickman acting or was that just Rickman being Rickman the whole time? I thought he was just being like pissy because he was drawing off of the experience of Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart playing Jean-Luc Picard on, on kind of a lowbrow sci-fi show and, and, and really putting his um, acting prowess to work. But what I'm hearing from you is that he was really just really pissed off at Tim Allen the whole time. And maybe he was drawing like from very deep, a personal well as well. Mm -hmm. And that is, so fascinating to me. Yeah, even the director and the producers didn't know if Alan Rickman was in character or if this was just stuff that he was saying. Like they couldn't parse it the entire film shoot. That is so amazing. I just all like 
just, I love Alan Rickman so much. All of his work has been like his whole career was so where I'm reading Harry Potter out loud to my kids right now. And mm-hmm. I just think of, I just think and cry about Alan Rickman on a nightly basis because we're on book five and we've got a couple more to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just, that story just lights up my heart and soul knowing that he just really hated Tim Allen. Um, so when you're on set, I feel like there's this point when you have an emotional moment where stuff feels really dangerous mm-hmm. and you're not sure where the story ends and where the, the truth or the personal begins. And that is when you know that it's on and every scene, if it's working has that, that moment of danger. And especially when you're dealing with actors with big emotions and with big emotional arcs, who are going through a lot. I think that it always has that, like your spidey sense, your, the hair on the back of your neck goes up and everyone in the room feels, and you, you just feel the danger. And um, that's when it's good. And sometimes you just got to pray for danger every time you go, <laughs> every time you go into a setup. Um, I think a lot of it just comes from casting phenomenal actors who know what they're doing and staying out of their way. Mm-hmm. And I, I usually, I find that, um, you buy a lot of loyalty and you buy a lot of commitment from actors when you let them just kind of do what they want the first take. And then you drill down and dial in through the next couple takes into what you want. And, um, people are more likely to go with you to greater and farther planes. If you just give them a chance to do what they want to do and how they see it on the first take. Yeah. And, and you'll learn a lot. They might bring stuff that you never thought of. And you're like, oh, you know what? You're a professional actor. You have thought about your arc more than I have thought about your arc. Because you're a specialist and I am a generalist of story, you know? <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll we'll get into some, some more Galaxy Quest. We'll, we'll be right back. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach, stories from beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined by Kestrin Pantera today to talk about Galaxy Quest. Um... I brought up earlier Spielberg was on set and that actually brought up like a whole host of very interesting things um, about Galaxy Quest and how it was shaped. And I think I had seen on, I have, every once in a while I see on like social media that people are like, Spielberg isn't as good as people say he is. And I'm like, you guys, yeah, he is. <laughs> what the fuck? He's very good. Um, and when he came and looked at the footage and looked at the script and, and what everyone was doing, because this was a movie set up at DreamWorks and this is, you know, this was Steven Spielberg. And so he really had a hand in a lot of things that, w- that were going on. And so 
according to um, the producers, um, they said, quote, Stephen can come in even with so many balls in the air himself and look at what you are shooting or cutting and get right to the heart of the matter and say, why not do this? End quote. And it was one of those things where the kind of studio overlord, if you will, ended up being a really fantastic thing for them in shaping this movie. And, um, and I think that, you know, when you're in the indie world, it's very different that, you know, you have to be your own Spielberg. And, and I'm wondering though, does that mean that you maybe still send it to people that you consider to be your Spielberg? Are there people in your life who can kind of cut to the heart of the matter and tell you like, this is where the heart of the story is? Yeah, absolutely. I think you just build your brain trust. Like, you know, at Pixar, they have a brain trust of all the smartest people that they know. And if you're an indie filmmaker, you just need to get the best people that you know, whose input you respect and really trust. And that's who you show. Um, I have a process if I'm working with a really rough cut, there's, I, I need to talk to people who uh, are high empathy and also deep insight. So if I'm not sure if something works or not, I pick um, the smartest and most empathetic people to look at it. And I know that they're capable of seeing where it wants to go and what it wants to be. And, you know, especially when you're in an indie situation, um, a lot of stuff can get derailed or killed with like the wrong feedback at the wrong time, mm-hmm. but the right feedback at the right time can inject you with a momentum that, you know, continues your manic episode, which is what filmmaking is. So those people who can look at it and say, this is what I'm getting right now. And here's where I'm confused. Mm-hmm. And what were you trying to say here? Oh, Okay. That is really clear if you A, B, and C, that adjustment. That was unclear. Here's how to get more clear on that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more um, as opposed to like a boss dad or corporate overlord coming in and saying, I liked or didn't like it, or here's where you can be more on point. It's more like a, a therapy session with a really, really, really um, good shrink mm-hmm. who asks you what it is that you want to accomplish and then reflects back to you some tools that could help you attain that goal. Oh, that's nice. That's a good way to put it. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that I, that I love that Spielberg added to Galaxy Quest are, um, for instance, um, uh, uh, Justin Long's character of Brandon. Oh, he's so good. Mm-hmm. Justin, like little baby Justin Long. We love him so much. Yeah, he was, I think it might've been his first feature, but he said, quote, someone told me that Spielberg's the reason I'm in the movie, that they were going to cut my role down to almost nothing, but he said that it needed an element to connect to the fans, a human element. This was according to, you know, the producers, end quote. Um, And and I think that that's a really um, lovely sentiment of something that um, Spielberg has clearly honed over the years of understanding fan appeal. You know, like you can do, it's almost like in his movies, he does a little bit for him and a little bit for the fans half, like all the time. It's like 50, 50, like I can do this for me, but I'm going to give you this. And that kind of relationship that he has with his audience is um, something that is translated very well and very easily both to the theme of this movie galaxy quest because it's all about fandom and then secondarily to um the structure of the film and and you know what is what is the creative part that you know that they get to do for their for themselves and what they're doing for their their fan or their audience 
It's so exciting to imagine just being in the shoes of, you know, you're making Galaxy Quest and that you have Spielberg as this resource to reflect upon. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think it would take a little bit of mind ninja work not to look him in the face and receive feedback and be like, you made E.T., dude. Like, <laughs> you know, like the heart, the heart center and the story of E.T. is just a it's a perfect movie. And he gets structure and he gets sci-fi so well. And what I, what my sense is, and I've never worked with them, but what I got away, you know, kind of from watching galaxy quest is the heart is so front and center. The heart and love are really center in um, galaxy quest. And I feel like that's something that Spielberg brings to projects as well. Like there's the fandom and the commercial aspect, but the heart centered um, storytelling. And I think that expanding Justin Long's character is such a thoughtful way to connect to an audience. And, 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 you know, as, as we said earlier, that it ends with a celebration of Mm -hmm. sci-fi and of Star Trek and of fandom. Mm -hmm. Um, um, you know, I, before, okay, we brought up a few things and we can talk about Sigourney Weaver first. Um, let's, let's say that Sigourney Weaver, she was really wasn't supposed to be cast in this movie because they didn't want to see anyone who had been in um, a sci-fi property before. And she had obviously very famously been in sci-fi properties, multiple of them. And um, the thing is that she fought for this role, which I find fascinating because she is uh, an actor of a certain kind of caliber and, um, you know, stardom. And yet she was fighting for this because she wanted to have something that felt personal to her. And she said that this was a role that actually felt personal to her because she could have been on this path of a, you know, a Gwen DeMarco of, you know, feeling um, insecure and getting stuck in the one role that you were known for. Like, what if she never did anything after Alien? You know, like, what if that's it? And so she fought for it and she also fought for her big tits and she fought for her blonde wig because she wanted to like be that person and kind of exercise those demons and in a comic way. And, and I think that that is such a fun thing that she, you know, she made that role. It it could have fallen flat, but she's such a phenomenal actress. It's also this radical act of feminism that Ripley who shaves her head an alien plays this uh, ditzy blonde counterpart to a oafish leader who is clearly the least talented and least intelligent of everyone. And is sort of the love interest mm-hmm. and, and support, supporting role to, to this, you know, you know, doofy dude. And, but when, when, when Ripley does it and when Sigourney Weaver does it, it is this subversive commentary on, patriarchy and society and it's so fascinating to Mm -hmm. me that when Sigourney Weaver decides to like wear a push-up bra and put on a blonde wig and repeat the words that a man says to a computer and then repeat the words that a computer says back to a man it isn't this like bimbo-y statement on how women are lesser than men it's more like a statement on what dumbasses uh, (laughs) this trope (laughs) like how stupid this trope is and it's 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 just an act of brilliance uh, and I think, um, obviously that wasn't what they were going for, but this is something that, that happened, you know, throughout the making of this movie is that they started to understand the depth of their story slowly, bit by bit 
by bit. It wasn't just all on the page, although like, you know, Robert Gordon did an amazing job and a lot of things were there. But as things started to fall together, everything just got a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. Like, um, and I appreciate that, that they didn't um, just stick with what they had, that they were really interested in finding the story in the story that they had. Um, and another example of that is Tony Shalhoub. And so I'm going to say this quote. Initially, I went in to audition for Guy Fliegman. Then they cast Sam Rockwell, offered me the part of the, and then offered me the part of the Asian guy. I said, I'm not going to play an Asian guy, but I'll play a guy that plays an Asian. How about that? So my part as written, we basically had to throw it all out because it didn't work with me in there. I mean, we couldn't figure out how to make that work. So Dean said, look, we'll invent a new character as we go along. It's a tribute to the other actors that they were open to us changing my lines every day. Usually when you come to work, people want to know what's going to happen. I thought the guy should always be eating, for instance. He should never go anywhere without his little stash of food because when you're an actor, you never know when your next meal is. The prop people were just giving me little stuff from craft services. And if I didn't like it, I'd go find my own, end quote. I mean, what, what's your experience like with working with these actors who, who feel, who feel like they can, you know, make a rounded character or feel like they can take chances even after you've already been shooting the character for a while? I mean, I think it's the most exciting and fun part of the process. When you have a specialist and a, and someone who's really thought about it, you'll get pushback. I mean, ultimately I'm an editor director, so I'm always thinking about how it's going to cut together and piece together in the end. So mm -hmm. I'm happy, you know, if someone wants to do a take and do something that I don't know if it will necessarily cut together in the end, yeah, it builds trust and um, enthusiasm and generates momentum and safety and kind of room for exploration and creating room for danger to happen. You know, especially on an indie side, if I'm, we're pretty good about, you know, time and finishing on time and finishing, you know, early. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's not going to kill my, it's not going to kill my day to give them a take that will earn, you know, lifelong trust and get garner like legendary, like performances, you know, perhaps later on in the shoot. And ultimately I don't need to tell people that like, I'm not going to use that take. I don't need to rub it in their face. Yeah. You just don't quietly don't use the take. And I think that the trust to like, I can be out there. I can be like authoritarian God in the edit room, but I, I find that I get better performances on set if I'm a little bit more equitable and generous and collaborative. So you have to be two different people, like separate those sides of yourself in a sense. Oh, for sure. I mean, the big secret is that you get to decide which take to use in the end. So you are God, you get to do it. It's mm -hmm. fine. So like, let them riff a little longer or d take it a different direction. And ultimately you, if it's, you, you guide them back to the center, like the, the skeleton of the story. So we are going to take another quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll get a little bit further into some fun character things, some fun director things, and we'll be right back. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. These are real podcast listeners, not actors. We took the identifying marks off this podcast. Just tell me your impressions. It's really sexy. My first thought is like, Radiolab? Definitely something popular. Yeah, really popular. A hit show. But funny, too. Like, does Tina Fey have a podcast? Or the Marx Brothers? Yeah, is this podcast Radiolab, but hosted by the Marx Brothers? And sexy, like Sade? 
It reminds me of Sade. Exactly. And they're all riding in a BMW. Close, but not quite. Take a look behind these panels. <gasps> and then watch this rocket blast off into space. Oh. And there's the pies we made you. <gasps> now, let's show you the podcast. Wow, it was Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go? Hold on. Oh. Whoa. Ooh. Oh my goodness. That was 514 JD Power and Associates Podcasting Awards. That was really scary, but compelling. I guess I should definitely subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go. Um, yeah, I'd say so. Jordan Jesse Go, a real podcast. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Kestrin Pantera, and we're talking about Galaxy Quest. Um, so, you know, you were talking about earlier, you know, the the idea of, um, you know, giving people time to do the takes that they want and, you know, trying to be this equitable director. Um, and uh, Pariso, I think, you know, he was everyone's favorite. He was he was very good at that. Um, but he was also really good at kind of identifying um, who who needed more time, who needed less time. And apparently Justin Long did not need much time at all. And um, he said, quote, Justin was so good that we ended up finishing his stuff a little ahead of schedule. I had had a big altercation with the line producer. They wanted to drop the garbage bag scene. We were running out of time, so I reluctantly agreed to not shoot it. And then when we shot the day, I ran outside quickly and I ended up getting it in two takes, end quote. And I think that that's a, a lovely thing where he didn't push Justin to go faster, but they kind of had this idea, like this kind of... um you know, uh, this unspoken, you know, like if we finish this, that means we get to shoot the thing that we really want to. And that scene, which I'll remind people is, um, it's like in the middle of a dramatic thing and they need Brandon's character to guide them to the, uh, to the core to, you know, to save them. But, uh, Brandon's still a teenager and he has to take out the trash. And so they're trying to get a hold of him, but he's outside, you know, putting the trash in the trash cans. And it's a nice little sight gag. The thing that I think is really cool is that, um, he's, you know, just this teenager and Dean Pariseau knows that this sight gag is going to be a great crowd pleaser because you've just got like this building, building tension and he's breaking it up. And, and I, I think that that's great instincts, but it's so wonderful when an actor is so good that they nail every take and all of a sudden you have extra time at the end of the day, which is so rare. I mean, how, how often does that happen? Um, I mean, I think it happens. I think if you're smart about the way that you build your schedule and you pad in two days, two empty days at the end, then you always finish early, right? Like you're inevitably going to go over and, you know, that's just the way I shoot, but I, I usually shoot pretty fast and pretty short and, um, have actors who are really good, but I always kind of insist on more takes than most people are used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, we usually do five. And I know most people, you know, some do more, some do less, but we usually settle around five takes and we usually cross shoot. Um, I mean, at least on on like a teeny tiny indie movie, um, it's just better for editing and just time, Mm -hmm. right? Relighting every, you know, everywhere you go. So does that mean, are you lighting for like 360 or 180 or like, what do you? We're usually doing lighting for 180. Okay. 
Wow. Um, I mean, it's some, yeah, yeah. It's usually about 180, but you know, our DP on uh, mother's little helpers and I, and I directed another series with her, which was, we really enjoyed working together, but she shot stuff for Netflix. She's shot stuff for WB. So she's definitely a studio experienced director, but, um, she's super agile and we were able to just, you know, find ways to work with natural light. And, you know, she's not the first DP to be really good at working with natural light and it, super helps if you just find someone whose aesthetic you like and it really serves an agenda for wrapping early or finishing on time or being able to add scenes. We added so many scenes when we shot Mother's Little Helpers. So that anecdote about him getting the Justin Long taking out the trash shot like Mm -hmm. fills me with like a fuck yeah like fuck you line producer. Like (laughs) it seems so goofy. Like like the line producer like I think putting together a really agile team that will give it to you straight. Like, I think that we should set an expectation. That would be a bonus if we can get it, but there shouldn't be any fights. It should, it should be baked into the ethos of the team, like where you're going to be flexible and where you're going to have your stretch days and, yeah, and be aligned on that goal. Well, speaking about the edit, um, Robert Gordon had some things to say about the edit because this was, you know, this is a a PG movie. So he said, quote, there's talk about the so-called R-rated version of the film. When I originally wrote it, I wasn't thinking about a family film, just what I wanted to see. So when the ship lands in the convention hall in the original draft, it decapitates a bunch of people. There was Mm. also stuff we shot where Sigourney tries to seduce some of the aliens. It was cut, and that's why her shirt is ripped at the end. Also the worst Mm. dubbed F-bomb ever. Good for Dean for never shooting coverage on that. End quote. Mm. <laughs> That's fascinating because when I was watching the ship crash into the Comic-Con convention hall, I was fearing for the people's safety and was shocked that they made that, that choice and was glad that nobody actually died because the movie gets so, it's so emotionally real in certain areas for being a satire and, and, a, and a broad comedy in many senses that uh, I, was, I was really worried about them. And I'm glad that no one died. <laughs> Do you feel like you've ever had an experience where you um, like really, really reshaped a story when you were in the edit? Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like with the last one with Mother's Little Helpers that we could have we could have cut that to be a broad comedy, mm-hmm. and we could have cut it to be a very, very, very tragic drama. Yeah, and, um, with you know, with the tone that we were going for, I think our essence was. Um, there's nothing so bad that you can't laugh about it. And there's nothing so good that you can't forget that we're completely fucked. And I think we settled into that zone, but there were definitely versions where we strayed. And I, I, I one of like a short that I directed a long time ago that we ended up just killing was like, it was like, is this a broad comedy or is this a sad, is this an indie tragedy? Mm-hmm. And it was like, we covered so many, we covered it in so many ways, but didn't, cover it enough in the right ways that it was just a total shit show. So yeah, for sure, I learned from that. And that was one of the most instrumental lessons. (laughs) It was, I'm really glad that it happened on that short and it happened early because I learned so much from it Mm -hmm. moving forward. And, you know, one thing that is really fun when you tinker in your edit, um, that I think galaxy quest did really well was their, their music was, uh, their score was so authentic to the star Trek soundtrack oh yeah and 
they mined these emotional moments that where I'm like crying because this like weird alien is this dying in Tim Allen's arms mm-hmm. and like or in Alan Rickman's like weird, you know, like snail head, uh, you know, prosthetic head arms. Um, but it was, it was very tear jerky and heartfelt and it had all of these epic moments. And I think that, you know, if they had changed the music in those moments, like, you know, it would still be galaxy quest, but it was such a cool third dimension that they added in the edit of like depth of satire. Yeah, it was really sweet. And I, I just love watching Alan Rickman play his kind of curmudgeonly signature role in that. But he, when he, you know, he leans down and like says like by grab Thor's hammer to this, you know, dying alien, it's a really moving, really touching scene. <laughs> I mean, he's acting his face off with like a weird alien melty shower cap, like popping off of his gourd, you know, to a guy with like, you know, Caesar bangs in an alien costume and you're crying because he's so great of an actor. It's an amazing moment. And I do wonder, I mean, that's the thing, obviously, when Alan Rickman died, there was a huge contingent of Harry Potter fans who were very, very sad. But I think that it also led to a kind of resurrection and even higher cult status of this film of uh, people rediscovering it or discovering it for the first time. Um, because his because of him and because of his performance and how he elevates this movie and um you know it's it's an interesting thing that this has um become so famous to the point where there's now a fan documentary of it uh on amazon yeah it's called it's called never surrender so there's an entire documentary about this movie now and the fandom around it and you know I, it's such a strange parallel that um, now this other movie, so b- both Harry Potter and Galaxy Quest become kind of his iconic roles that he had, despite the fact that he, you know, was in all these other very kind of highbrow um, uh, pieces and was on the stage. Um, but this is his legacy kind of paralleling what's happening in the story yet again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure he loves it. I mean, I wonder how much of him like actually does harness some bitter or did harness like a bitter Shakespearean, you know, resentment toward the role or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wonder how much he was doing it for the paycheck or, or for the irony. Well, I think he was a little bit bitter about always being the villain, but the thing is that he was just quite good at it. Um, and at the very least, you know, being in Harry Potter and getting to play the villain, he he got to play a, a more nuanced portrait of what a villain is and maybe not, not a villain, maybe more of an anti-hero. Well, not to totally spoil Harry Potter, but maybe, <laughs> just maybe, in the end, if you get all the way to the end, Snape, I mean, Alan did eventually get what maybe was his true his true calling to be the a, a true protagonist. <laughs> well, now we uh, we come to the end of the Alan Rickman podcast. Um, <laughs> Catherine, it's been really great to speak with you. And um, a reminder for people who want to see Mother's Little Helpers, um, how can they see it? Well, it is available uh, on iTunes. It, it goes live May 5th, so it is going to be ready to rock and roll for Mother's Day weekend on iTunes, Amazon, on demand everywhere. Great. Um, So wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. 
And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Uh, we're obviously starting to do something a little bit and uh, different at the end of every episode. Uh, from now on, I'm getting a staff pick, some recommendation of a film by a woman that you can watch right now in your own home. And I'm going to be doing a sci-fi pick to try to keep it thematically together. And it's maybe less of a sci-fi, maybe like possible reality, uh, because the one I'm recommending today is Mimi Leader's 1998 film, Deep Impact. Um, that one is obviously, uh, or it was overshadowed by Michael Bay's movie at the same time, Armageddon. Armageddon, which I believe had a Criterion release. Um, but Deep Impact was the one that I liked quite a bit more. It felt more human and it felt more um, cohesive and it felt like it was um, a movie that was talking about kind of global impact. Uh, word choice uh, intended and ab about what happens when the world is coming to an end and it, and it also felt like it had um, like a sweetness to it uh, like a bittersweetness to it but I, and I ended up really liking it as a disaster film when I rewatched it again and so I highly recommend maybe revisit it give it another chance it's just an old school disaster movie it gives you all the great stuff that you want um, when uh, a comet is about to hit earth so that's it for us. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. We are Thermians from the Clatoo Nebula and we need your help. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.